inspiration of God. God inspired holy men of old to pen this book. There's no other book like it in the fact that it reveals God to us. The Bible is a theological book. It teaches us about God. There are things that you absolutely would not know about God if it were not for the Bible. The Bible is a historical book. It documents the history of the nation of Israel. It documents the history of the New Testament church. It documents the history of the life of Christ. The Bible is an encouraging book. It is full of hope and promise and encouragement. Of course, the Bible is a literary book has poetry, it has prose, it is one of the greatest literary masterpieces in all the world. If you want to literate people, teach them to read the Bible. But you know what else I have found the Bible to be is that the Bible is a manual that helps me to navigate life. And I think sometimes people struggle with why should I read the Bible, why should I listen to preaching, why should I show up to, to spend an hour of my time or a half an hour of my time listening to a book that was written thousands of years ago. And, and what I've been reminded of this week in my study, as I've studied Psalm 73 for this morning and Exodus 15 tonight, is that in it God chronicles the ups and downs of life and the obstacles and the hurdles and the things that come to every human experience. And in them he shows us how to navigate. In them he shows us how to mitigate some of the pain and some of the sorrow and some of the pitfalls that are there. This psalm today is that it is one of the most transparent exposés written autobiographically by a guy named Asaph. And what he concludes is that it is good to draw near to God. That's why I chose it under this theme. There are 28 verses in this psalm. I, I want to just uh, read from the beginning, the middle, and the end to give you the overview. And then we will break it apart as we go into it. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, Asaph says... My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Drop down to verse 16. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Last two verses, 27 to 28. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all thy works. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you crafted a book with so much care and concern that it stands the test of time and it speaks to every human experience regardless of age or culture. Father, we are enamored and stand in awe of you today and acknowledge that this is no human book but that this is of divine origin and that the humans were simply instruments by which you communicated it to us. Father, I pray that today as we come to this passage of Scripture and to this textbook that we would not see it as something old and archaic, 
but that we would see it as being fresh and living and vibrant and speaking into our lives so that we who may be experiencing the exact same thing that Asaph did or the people of Israel did uh, in Mara, that we would know the true nature of you, the reality of eternity, and the strength that helps us to navigate through Lord, I pray and ask that you would endue me with your power, that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit, and that you would help me to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph in which he describes a crisis of faith that he experienced. What you are reading here is Asaph's crisis of faith. The crisis arose from a contradiction between what he believed to be true, what he had been taught to be true, and what he saw, what he was experiencing, what he was observing. He couldn't reconcile these two together. You see, because what he believed was that God is good to his people. But what he saw appeared that the ungodly seemed to have it better than the godly. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. But I remember as a child, my mom would say, God will take care of us. And I thought like Asaph, well, he's taking better care of the neighbors who don't go to church and serve him than he is us. This bothered Asaph. It bothered him so much, and and he could not figure it out. He tried to reason and rationalize it and look at different situations. In fact, it seemed the more that he looked into it, the greater the discrepancy became. Look at all these ungodly people who are prospering in the world. Now, I would just make this simple statement to you, not to paint in broad strokes or stereotype, but you think about the wealthiest of the world, and you don't find that the first thing written in their autobiography or their, uh, their, their vita is that they love the Lord Jesus Christ and are committed to following him. And so you and I can see the same thing that Asaph sees and says, I know some really godly people who don't have it very good. And I know some ungodly people who seem to be just raking it in. It troubled Asaph so much that, that he really began to question what he had always believed. Is God truly good? Does God truly bless those people who love him and serve him? I mean, is the sacrifice worth it? And in his desperation, when he exhausted all of his own rationale and logic, he he went to God, and, and I mean, he really went to God. You know the difference. And it seems that he went almost as one last great effort. Like, God, I cannot figure this thing out. And if I can't get it clear here, I think there's a watershed moment in my life that's coming. And in that desperation, when Asaph went to God, God showed him what it looked like from his divine perspective. You see, what had happened was that Asaph was looking at it from his perspective. His little slice of life, what he could see. And when he went to God, God showed him what it looked like from the divine side, from heaven's side. Asaph noticed things that he had not considered before. And after seeing it from God's perspective, he concluded that it was good for him to draw near to God. Funny how that works, isn't it? The closer you get to someone, the easier it is to see things through their eyes. How many times have you and I said in our life, what in the world are they thinking? 
I mean, I can't believe that they would do something like that. What are they, what are they imagining? But, but you know what we find is that if we're close to somebody, we're really sympathetic. Well, I understand why they're acting that way. Well, I can see how they're hurt by that. I can see why they would respond in this way or that way. Often, listen to this, the difference of perspective is caused by a difference of proximity. Let me say that again. The difference of perspective is caused by a difference of proximity. The farther you are away from God, it is not going to make sense to you what happens to you, what happens to others. But if you get closer to God, not only does that change your proximity, but it'll change your perspective. Let's dig in. Let's, let's unpack this. The first thing I want to point out is Asaph's dilemma in verses 1 through 3. The dilemma involves a person, a principle, and a problem. A dilemma is a problem you cannot figure out. The person is Asaph. We're told that by the heading of the psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph's the writer of the psalm. Asaph, if you don't know about Asaph, Asaph was appointed as the chief musician of the Levites by King David himself, in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 4 through 7, he understood, King David, who was a man after God's own heart, that, that musical expression was a part of worship, that it honored and glorified God, that it uplifted people, and that it was to be a part of their religious ceremonies. And so David appointed certain Levites who had musical ability to be in charge of this. And Asaph is the chief. He is the lead worship leader for the nation of Israel. That's who Asaph is. You may not be familiar with his name, but you're familiar with his work. He, he, he has 12 psalms that are ascribed to him. Uh, 11 are, are arranged together in this section, beginning in Psalm 73 and going through Psalm 83. And the other one is Psalm 50. It's probably his biggest hit. It is the one where he sings that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know that one. You, you've probably quoted that before. That, that's Asaph celebrating the sovereignty and superiority and sufficiency of God. And he's saying, God doesn't need your sacrifices. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your cattle. He's got cattle on a thousand hills. That's who our God is. But his main role is to orchestrate the psalms. You see, he writes some of the psalms, but the predominant psalm writer was King David. And the Bible says that David would deliver a psalm into the hand of Asaph, and Asaph would compose it or have music composed to go with it. He would orchestrate it, the instruments that were to be used, and, and then he would introduce it to the nation of Israel on their times of holy days and worship. Uh, this man's role is to lead the nation of Israel in worship of God. That's who the person is. The principle is stated in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. The principle is that God is good to those who love him and serve him. God is good to his people. Well, we have a similar principle, Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. 
This would have been a universally accepted belief in Israel. That's why he begins the verse with truly, verily, certainly, without disputation, God is good to Israel. And he'd say that and everybody would say, Amen. And it's kind of like when you all and uh, you and I make the statement, God is good. And the response, all the time. All the time, God is good. Now, I've heard that done in church quite a bit. God is good. You say it all the time. And then you say all the time, God is good. I've heard that said in churches. But you know what I've never heard? I've never heard anybody jump up and say, I object. God is not good all the time. But you know what I know? I know that there's some people sitting in those churches who don't feel like God is good at that time. If God is good, why is my life like this? If God is good, why do I have this problem? If God is truly good and he has the power to do good in my life, why didn't he do something about this? The problem. The problem is stated in verses 2 and 3, and that is Asaph is struggling with this. He says, as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's the problem. Asaph is the chief worship leader. You have a universally accepted principle that God is good. And Asaph is over here saying, man, I, I'm about to lose my faith and belief in the fact that God is good to Israel, especially to those who cleanse their hearts. I'm about to slip away from this. Something has challenged Asaph's theology. He's been going through some personal crisis of faith. And he feels like he's about to slip away. What he once stood so firmly on is, is no longer firm footing. And, and he is barely hanging on. And in, in that perplexing state, he finds himself actually envying the lives of those who do not serve God. Because they seem to have it better than him. They don't seem to be making the same sacrifices. Can I ask you a question? You ever said something like this? Man, I could have a boat like that if I didn't tithe. I could have a house like that if I didn't give to missions. Well, I could have a car like that if I didn't give my money back to the Lord. Well, maybe you've never said it, but you might have thought it once or twice. It's part of our human experience that sometimes we are envious of people who don't have the same commitment to God that we have. And that's what Asaph is going through. What, what is all this doing for me? What is all of this adding up for me? I mean, I'm giving it all to God, and it seems like the people who aren't are getting better rewards than I am. And that brings us to Asaph's disillusionment in verses 4 through 15. Asaph has become disillusioned by what he has seen and experienced in life. It's not that he is reading from another religious book. It is not that he's pursuing a false god or a false religion. It is that whatever he has gone through in life has caused him to doubt what he believed about God. It seems to him that the ungodly have better lives than the godly do. Obviously, from his perspective, he, he knows some people 
who love God who are going through some things, and he knows some people who don't love God, and they seem to be reaping benefits. They make no effort to serve the Lord, and yet they don't get the sicknesses and diseases that some of the godly people that he knows of have contracted. They, they live long lives, it says. There's no bands in their death. Their strength is firm to the end of their day. See, so you say, man, it just seems like, seems like the godly people suffer and the ungodly people are the ones who, who don't suffer. He goes on to say in these verses that they seem to have more money. They seem to get more promotions. They live in nicer houses. And they even get by with breaking the rules and flaunting it in God's face. Who is God? What does God know? What are you talking to me about? God's going to judge me. Look at how I'm living. I, I, I've got it all. And Asaph is just perplexed by this. Because on the other hand, Asaph says, I've lived a clean life. I've made sacrifices for the Lord. I, I've tried to do everything by the book, and what does it get me? And really, this is what it comes down to. Asaph has experienced something personal. Look at the text, if you would. Verses 4 through 12, he, he describes the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verse 13, he, he says, look, Verily I, personal, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy people. Asaph is saying I've had one problem after the other. Whether it's health problems or money problems, relationship problems, if it's not one thing, it is the other. It seems like daily I have been plagued by these things. On top of that, it seems like if I slack off one little bit, God gets all over me and punishes me, and I can't get by with anything. You ever felt like that? Man, I sure have. Lord, why do I feel guilty about that? All I did was to say the same thing back to them. They said to me, and you're eating me up about it, and they seem to be enjoying life. Why are you holding me to a different standard? He said that he's chastened every single day. Well, Hebrews 12 tells us, doesn't it, that God chastens the sons and daughters that he loves, and if you have no chastisement, then you're a bastard. You're not a son or a daughter of God. But i got to tell you, that's not the most encouraging part of the relationship. It's helpful, but it's not encouraging. And if that weren't bad enough, Asaph says, I can't talk to anybody about this. That's what he's saying in verse 15. If I say, if I voice these things, if I, if I speak this out loud to other people, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Think about it. He is the chief worship leader, isn't he? If he voices this kind of doubt about this essential doctrine of God, that God is good, people would be so disappointed in him that he was struggling with a crisis of faith. And if he told them what he was really feeling, they'd think he was a heretic. And Asaph is in a real dilemma, and he is disillusioned. But then Asaph receives some discernment. 
in verses 16 through 26. Asaph's discernment was off. He couldn't see things clearly from where he was standing. Notice verse 16, when I thought to know this, I mean, when I really tried to figure it out, when I focused on it, it was too painful for me. This was really hurting Asaph until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. You know, that makes some real good preaching. I could take that and say, you know what, bless God, you need to get in the house of God. If you ain't in the house of God, you ain't ever going to understand anything. You've got to get in the sanctuary. If you're not in the sanctuary this morning, you need to be in the sanctuary tonight because we're going to have a service at 530. I, I could really preach on that. But when I read the text, I'm reminded that Asaph is the chief song leader in Israel. He's in the sanctuary. What does he mean he went into the sanctuary? That's where he lives. That's his job. That's where he is every single day. It's not like Asaph is some backsliding sinner who's living out there in the world. And he's like, i got to turn this thing around and get right with God and go to the tent revival tonight. It appears that Asaph was living close to the things of God. But he wasn't living close to God. Whew. That's danger, isn't it? Come on with that. Hello? Isn't that the danger for you and I? We get living real close with the things of God. I mean, we tote that Bible back and forth to church. We might even read our chapters in it. We come to Sunday school and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And, man, we give in the Annie Armstrong. We give in the Lottie Moon offerings. And I mean, we do the stuff. We're living it. I mean, this is our life. We're Christians. We're committed. And there's a danger that we can live real close to the things of God and not be living close to God. And that's where Asaph was. From the outside, everybody would have been looking at Asaph and saying, man, that guy loves the Lord. That guy is committed. That guy, I mean, it's all about Jehovah. But on the inside, Asaph knew that he had not been entering into the secret place with God. He'd been going through the motions. He'd been walking the steps, but he wasn't actually getting intimate with God. And it turns out that when he drew near to God, he began to see things more clearly. When, when, when I went into the sanctuary, then I understood. And he lays out for, for us what he understood. Verse 18, Surely thou didst set them, the wicked, in slippery places. Thou cast them down into destruction. You see, Asaph has been looking at it only from his perspective, a physical, material perspective, and he needed to look at it from God's perspective, a spiritual and eternal perspective. And what he saw was that their prosperity and their deferment of judgment was actually a slippery slope from which they would slide straight into hell. You say, how is that? I mean, why doesn't God just give it to the, give it to the, to the godly people? I mean, why doesn't he just make them all the wealthiest and, and he starves out the, the ungodly so that they would come to him? And what Asaph sees from God's point of view is that God has given them this slippery slope that, that he's really making them make a choice. Do I want God or do I just want the blessings that I think God will give me? And if I've got the blessings of life already, then why do I need God? And it reminds me. Of a guy that's identified as the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 who came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, oh, it's easy, just keep the commandments. 
Oh, I've done that. I've done that. I've been living for the Lord all my life. Oh, there's one more thing. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it all to the poor. Take up your cross and come follow me. And he went away sad because he had great possessions. He didn't want God. He wanted what God could do for him. He wanted the blessings. That's the slippery slope that the, the prosperous wicked are in. That is, if they can be satisfied in this life with the material, financial possessions, then it deludes them and distracts them and keeps them from ever truly seeking God to save their souls. God tests and proves what is in their heart by this. Asaph discerned that their preoccupation with temporal things like Pleasure was distancing them from the eternal things of true worth in verse 19. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? Hey, you know, that preoccupation, it's like another guy Jesus told us about in Luke chapter 12. He's a rich barn builder. And he said, man, my crops have come in. I have really figured out how to maximize. I mean, I've got so much that, that my barns won't hold it. I'm going to tear down these small barns. I'm going to build me some humongous barns. I'm going to fill them up, and I'm going to retire early, and I'm going to sit back and take my ease and say, so you have made it. And Jesus said, thou fool, this night is thy soul required of thee. Hey, if you're just looking at the bottom line, if you're just looking at the bank account, if you're just looking at the success or the notoriety or the reputation, you might look around and say, hey, there's a lot of people that's got it better than I have. But when you see it from the eternal perspective, you realize that their preoccupation with success and pleasure is deluding them and that one day they are going to be rudely awakened by death and the damnation that follows. They are in for a rude awakening, he says in verse 20, as a dream when one awaketh. O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. It reminds me of another parable or a story of Jesus, a rich man and Lazarus, in which the rich man fared sumptuously every single day, and Lazarus sat at his gates begging. And the Bible says that the rich man died, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. There was no consolation of the material possessions that he once had in life that, that soothed the suffering that he experienced in eternity in hell. This is what God is opening Asaph's eyes to when he is looking around and he is saying, man, I was about to slip, I was struggling, I was thinking that they had it so much better than I have, but when I realized that they might have material possessions but they don't have eternal life, then now I know that I really am the blessed one in this scenario. Asaph was deeply convicted, and he repented. Notice, he says, verse 21, Thus was my heart grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant I was as a beast before thee. Let me tell you something. Repentance is not just what brings you to salvation. Repentance is not just a one-off experience when you turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Repentance has to be the way of the Christian life. That when you and I find ourselves to be wrong-headed and God opens our eyes to that, there ought to be a conviction that compels us to repentance where we come to God and say, God, I was wrong. God, I was foolish. God, I was ignorant. 
Thank you for opening my eyes. Help me to walk in your truth. If you haven't repented since you got saved, you're not doing it right. Asaph needed to repent. He's the chief song leader. There's no doubt that he's a saved man. He's going to heaven when he dies. I mean, he's having a crisis of faith, but he has faith. And in that journey... There are times when he needs to repent for his wrongheadedness, his misunderstanding, his me-centeredness. And he's got to get it back to where it ought to be. Asaph learned that having God and eternal life is worth more than all the money in the world. Again, Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Let me ask you, who would you trade places with if it means you go to hell when you die? And the answer is not one person. I'd rather live on pig slop and go to heaven than have all the wealth in the world and go to hell. When you know the value of God, it will keep you from being envious of others' temporal prosperity. Asaph realizes that in verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And afterward receive me to glory. Asaph says, hey, even though my grip was slipping on God, God's grip never slipped on me. Isn't that a beautiful theological truth that it reminds us of? That you might be having a crisis of faith about God, but he's not having a crisis of faith about you. He knows your frame that you are but dust. He knows your struggles and he loves you and saves you and gives you grace in spite of it. So that you and I can say, I'm continually with God. What, what, what else do I need if I've got the Lord? And Asaph figured out that when God is all you want, then you'll find that God is all you need. I love how he says this in verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion for ever at the end of life if we're comparing piles of stuff let me tell you the person's pile that has God far exceeds all the others you see when we've got God we've got it all when we've got God we lack nothing when we've got God we've got eternal life we've got eternal love he truly is the most satisfying possession we could possibly have that brings us to asaph's discovery in verses 27 and 28 asaph discovered that it's all about his proximity to god notice verse 27 for lo they that are far from thee notice proximity far from thee shall perish thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee in verse 27, Asaph concludes that those who are far from God will perish in eternity. That word perish is the same type of word that's used in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When, when he says those that are far from thee will perish, he's not just talking about dying. He's talking about eternal death, eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. Though they may prosper in this life, they will perish in eternity. And then in verse 28, 
Asaph concludes the entire psalm by declaring that it's good to draw near to God. Notice, but it is good for me to draw near to God. There's that proximity word. It is far in verse 27. It is near in verse 28. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all thy works. There are incalculable benefits in this life and in the life to come for those who draw near to God. You may not be seeing it from where you are at, Because you may not be near enough to God to see it from his perspective. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says it this way. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Do you believe that? Then stop looking at what everybody else has. Stop listening to what everybody else has. Stop fawning over what everybody else has. And start counting the treasure that you have. Paul said we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Look, the container may not look like much. But let me tell you, there is riches inside. So what dilemma do we have to go through to discover what Asaph discovered? That it's good to draw near to God. Do you need a dilemma? Are you in a dilemma? I mean, what's it going to take for you and I to say, I need to draw near to God? That, that no matter where I am at, even if I am living close to the things of God, there is a nearness that I can achieve. I can get closer to God. And so I ask you, are you struggling today? Are you, are you like ASAP? Do you feel like you're about to slip and fall? Does life seem unfair to you? Your perspective will change If you draw near to God. Maybe the things don't make sense to you right now. But they will when you draw near to God. Perhaps you're living close to the things of God. But you're not actually living close to God. Today is the day. Today is the day to make a move toward God. From whatever proximity we are from God. We can make a move to get nearer. James 4, 8, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads for just a moment. You may not be experiencing exactly what Asaph, Asaph experienced. You may not feel like you're disgruntled and about to slip, but... Perhaps you are struggling a little bit. Perhaps you feel that there's some unfairness in your life. Maybe you can't figure it out. And you need to stop trying to figure it out and start getting closer to God. Because Asaph said it was too painful for him when he thought about it, that there was no solution that made sense. But when he went into the sanctuary of God, then he understood And so when we stand in just a moment to sing, I'd invite you to just come on down to this altar. We haven't used it much in the past year. I can't think of a better day to use it than taking a step toward God. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is practical and it speaks to our daily common human experience. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to 
draw nearer to you from wherever we are today. Whether we are near or far, I pray and ask, Lord, that we would close that proximity between us. For those who may be struggling, Lord, for those who may be dealing with something that is unfair, I pray today, Lord, that they would turn their energies toward you and not trying to figure out why things are the way they are. God, I pray that you would give them the sweet relief that you gave to Asaph and that we would discover what he discovered and that the case would be closed and the dilemma would be behind us and the crisis of faith would be averted as we draw near to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.